This podcast makes no representations. None of this constitutes advice and your home or property may be repossessed if you do not keep up with repayments on your mortgage. Welcome to Not Another Mortgage Podcast, The Mortgage Nerd, The Bearded Broker, Lewis Shaw, with me as we go through part two. Last week, we talked about buying a house, the complete guide to everything you need to know, uh, doing all the jargon busting and everything, dispelling myths and giving tips and guidance and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Today, we're back with part two with all the same information about how to sell a house. Good afternoon, Lewis. Hi, Josh. How are you, mate? Are you well? I'm very well, thank you. I, uh, do you know, what? I really enjoyed it last week. It was there was a lot of stuff in there that was really, really interesting, and I'm looking forward to this one because the two are obviously quite well intertwined. Because for a lot of people, buying a house and selling a house come hand in hand. They'll be selling one and buying another at the same time. So uh, there was a lot of information which was um, sort of intertwined with this week's, uh, which we tried to sort of steer away from. So we had a little bit of a teaser. So I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, sure. I mean, to be fair, there's. there's I mean, last week's was, I recognised it was quite wordy, but then nevertheless, one of the things that I get often from, from first-time buyers is, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know what happens where and when and what everything means. Well, hopefully on the back of last week's, there shouldn't be in any doubt. I would I would hope anyway. I know it's a little bit wordy and I know it can be, get, got a little bit technical, but I would hope that it actually did the job in the sense of, if you listen to that, you will know. <laughs> You know? Well, let's, let's hope so. And if nothing else, I think, you know, it takes people a few steps closer because there'll be some stuff in there that they'll now be clear on. It sometimes raises different questions, but that's what we're here for. And you can always get in touch with us, let us know, and we, we'll cover it all in future podcasts. Yeah, sure. So so with regards to selling your house, now, of course, when people first buy a home, they are <clears throat> they tend not to, have, well, of course, first-time buyers, they haven't bought a home before. Um, and that's not the first time that they'll be doing something for the first time when it comes to property. So often, uh, first-time buyers, when they come to sell the house that they bought, that the people that are selling the home and moving on are either called home movers or second steppers, typically, in the kind of industry, in the jargon. Um, now, of course, if you're selling your home for the first time, because you bought it for the first time, you're selling it for the first time, again, you're going to be in the position of thinking, right, what do I do? Where, when, why? What are the costs going to be? Uh, what do I do first? You know, what do I need to be aware of? All these kind of things. And um, so, so this is kind of what I want to cover off in here. But it's just it's going to be relevant for people that have done it before anyway, because things change over time. Processes change over time. Um, you know, policies change over time. So there's going to be something here that's useful for, for a lot of people, hopefully. Now, the one thing that I do have to mention at the outset is that <clears throat> when it comes to selling a home, often because people have bought a home before, of course, because they're selling the home that they live in, they can sometimes make the assumption that they know more than they perhaps think they do, and that's a, a common a common cause in lots and lots of industries where where people have a small amount of knowledge um, and they and they assume that they have a lot of knowledge because they have a small amount of knowledge. And actually, the, the more that they learn, the more they realise they don't know as much as they thought they did. I can't remember. Is it, is it called the Dunning Kruger effect? I think it's it's called that, isn't it? Um, I'm just going to ask you. Me, I'm not. I'm not the expert. Yeah, it is. No, it is. No, it is the Dunning Kruger effect. Yeah. So um, it's a psychological psychological principle um, that kind of says uh, what happens is is that uh, if you don't know much, you tend to have high confidence, and as you and as you learn more, 
that kind of drops very, very quickly in terms of actually you realise you know nothing and then it, you, your competence grows over time when you actually start to learn stuff. But so the first step of that is, show, I think. <laughs> but the first step of that is actually to kind of understand that you probably don't know as much as you think you do. So when it comes to selling a home, um, often, and again, not always, but often people put things in the wrong order. So again, over the years and years that I've been doing this and the thousands of transactions that I've, I've, I've gone through, one thing is, is a perennial um, issue and it crops up all the time. So people pop the houses on the market, they decide, right, we're going to sell our home. And they go, right, so let's get an estate agent around. They get three estate agents around. They don't really know what they're picking when they're picking an estate agent. It's just generally the one that they like or the one that's cheapest. They don't really have a bit. Most people don't tend to set a criteria by which they judge them. Um, then they get the house on the market, get the photos taken. It goes on right, moving Zoopla and prime location or on the market and all the kind of property portals. If there's any I've not mentioned, I apologize. Um, so it goes on the property portals and then um, for whatever price they, they think it's, it's worth, and then away they go. They they uh, start looking at houses that they might like, <clears throat> and and one thing that kind of gets left to the side often is the the finances. Because often, of course, if you're selling your home, the chances are you've got you've got a mortgage, uh, unless you're you know you're kind of towards the end of your you know working life, in which case you might be downsizing. But for most people, they'll have a mortgage. Certainly for second steppers where they bought the first home and they're moving up the property ladder, that is going to happen for two or three steps. The likelihood is, is that they're probably going to be borrowing more. The second step is when they will likely borrow the most. Um, so they bought the first home, you know, we're selling that, and then they're kind of going now to the to the kind of probably the, the, the big family home, typically. So they're probably going to be borrowing significantly a, a significant amount uh, of money more. The likelihood is, is that because they've gone a little bit further in their jobs or their careers, they're earning a bit more. Uh, they've got some equity from the current home, so they've got a bit more deposit. And they make this mistake of thinking it's just going to be straightforward and because they've already got a mortgage, they're just going to sail through and it's all going to be fine. Now, the people that don't get financial advice before they put the house on the market are the ones that always tend to come unstuck. And there's, that's for, for two reasons. They come unstuck because either A, they don't set their own expert, well, they, they they mismanage their own expectations of what they can buy up to or something's happened that they weren't aware of that prevents them from prevents them from moving so for example it could be that um a change of job it could be a promotion it could be that someone's decided to go self-employed and not realized that actually that has a, a really really big impact upon whether you can buy on even though you've currently got a mortgage um so it's just so just it's, on that point before we move on just wanted to pick up on you mentioned there about people who um don't decide not to get financial advice for me is it fair to say it's almost like an insurance policy with financial advice where buying a home is the most expensive thing you will ever do and yes. so if you get it wrong, it can be pretty bad. We get insurance yeah. for so many things. Phones, for example, we pay insurance for a lot of us. Uh, some of us don't. I don't. My partner does. But the point here is if we're going to take out insurance as a, as a cover in case something goes wrong, surely the more expensive the transaction, the more important it is to have that insurance. And in this case, the insurance would be the financial advice. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So... Uh, as I've said before, buying a home, it tends to be the most valuable asset you'll ever own, and it's linked directly to the biggest day you'll ever have to pay off. For the, mo for the most people, unless you're very, very rich, that's the, that's the case. It's going to be the, the most valuable asset you own, val valuable asset you own uh, linked to the biggest debt you'll ever take out. Um, and so 
um, to be fair, a small variation in, in interest rates can, can have a huge, huge impact. If you're borrowing £200,000 over 20 odd years and there's a difference of perhaps, I don't know, a 1% difference in the interest rate overall over the 20 years, that can, that can mount up to thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds that are being wasted. Um, you know, and, and you're losing that money by paying too much interest. But not only that, you're losing what's called, there's also what's called an opportunity cost. So this is jargon. So an opportunity cost is not that you just lost £25,000 in paying more interest, but also if you hadn't lost that £25,000 and maybe put it in a savings account or maybe put it into a pension and that would have generated positive interest that would have made you money, then that actual, that 25,000 that you've lost actually could turn into maybe 40 or 50,000 pounds of opportunity cost because you've not had that money to invest in your retirement or um, paying off your mortgage early and therefore reducing the amount of interest you pay. Do you know what I mean? So it can make a big difference and a bigger difference than people realize. It's odd that, it's odd that um, when it comes to um, mortgages and the like, that there's there can be especially with um it tends to be people kind of between 35 and, and, and 50 as a, as a rule i mean you know we, we're always kind of told aren't we this day and age you shouldn't kind of mark out people because that's bad but in reality it's between 35 and 50 there does become some with some people not all some people an apathy in terms of mortgages that you know they roll onto a standard variable rate and decide oh, actually you know, i'll just leave it i can't be bothered uh and 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 and, and yet they'd be bothered if I was constantly debiting £150 out of their account and going, well, what are you doing that for? Well, I just want that £150 off you. Well, you know what I mean? It, when you kind of sway, you know, when you think of it in those terms, people would be very unhappy about that. But um, they are, they can sometimes do it to themselves. So anyway, so you're right. Um, it is it is important to get advice. And as I say, one of the things that a lot of people get make the mistake of when it comes to selling a home is they often... We'll get the estate agents around and get themselves on the market before getting mortgage advice. And it baffles me. I mean, I get why it happens. It's because there's not as much financial education out there that there should be. You know, most 18, 20 year old, 18 year olds that leave school or 20 year olds that leave university, they, they tend not to have a clue about, you know, finances in general. This kind of stuff isn't taught. Whether it should be, is it is up for a matter? I think it should be because I think there should be something that's taught to to young people to to explain to them the importance of this. Um, you know, but anyway, but you're right, there should be much more advice. So what happens is often people get on the market, they may have an offer accepted on their place. So maybe a first-time buyer's come along and gone, I want to buy this home. It fits everything I need. I want to buy this home. And then if you imagine again, um, that first-time buyer, they've perhaps you know, let's let's assume that everyone's seeing me. That wouldn't be the case, but let's assume they were. That first time buyers come to me and I've um, said, okay, let's get this going. So I've instructed solicitors for them. They've probably paid for the searches. They'll have paid me my broker fee so that I can get the mortgage arranged. Um, they could have paid a survey cost. Now, let's assume that I don't know the person that's selling the house. I've got nothing to do with that because they've decided to sell the house, put it on the market before actually coming and sitting down and having a meeting. It then turns out that they actually can't move. They can't buy onwards for whatever reason or they can't buy the house that they want to buy, and therefore they decide that they're not going to sell. That first-time buyer has just spent £500 on me, perhaps £400 on a survey, perhaps £300 on searches, not to mention being disappointed that they've, 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 they've wasted potentially £1,200, all because someone just thought, I can't be asked going and doing it because I know better. And, and whilst I know that this sounds a bit harsh, that's the reality of it, you know? And people need to be aware 
that when you're kind of moving home, and I'm sure they are aware, but it just it's good to highlight it. You, we, you know, I'm aware that when I'm dealing with mortgage and all the rest of it, I'm messing around with people's lives to a certain extent. You know, they are desperately wanting to move into their house because they've got a baby on the way or it's the first home and they, they can't wait to be out of rented accommodation or they, they need to move in with partners so they can have, you know, all the kind of wild sex that they want to do without having to worry about the parents listening. Those kind of things matter to people. I'm not there because mortgages are important. I'm there to facilitate people getting on with their lives. And when people put the house on the market and they expect people to buy them, they should also be aware that we're all in the business of allowing people to get on with their lives. And it actually can have, you know, a damaging effect, not monetarily only, but also, you know, as, as we've talked about before, that kind of the, the, managing, the managing of expectations is, is so vitally important when it comes to this kind of stuff, because it matters. People can get so downhearted. I've seen first-time buyers where they've, they've made offers on four houses and for one thing and another, it's fallen out of bed. It'll either be because the survey went wrong or because a buyer wasn't in a position to sell or because there was a legal ramification that meant that the property had to get some other work done. And that was then the timescale that it would take was kind of prohibitive. Or, you know, And you can see them, bless them, especially first time buyers, getting really demoralized. And that could all be alleviated by people that were selling the home, getting the advice when they need it, upfront before they get on the market because for two reasons and it come, this goes back to the the, the uh, last week's podcast when people that are selling the home come and have a sit down with me um, generally we'll say right how much is left on your mortgage people tend not to know what that is so we need to get the, the exact details T- secondly people often forget that they've got in, in, in a lot of cases, redemption penalties with their particular lender. So that's a cost of getting out of the mortgage. Is it going to be beneficial to pay it off? Do we need to port the mortgage? If we need to port it, can we borrow enough? And if we do port it, is the deal that's going to be we're going to be moving on to good enough? All these things we have to consider. How much can you borrow? Have you had a change in your personal circumstances? Probably, and often is as is the case, you've got additional debt because you've probably um, maybe got a car on finance now. You might have a kid or two. All these things make an impact so for example um i had a case recently i say recently it was it was november so it's not that you know in in the, in the grand scheme of things in the t- in the time scales that i worked to that's relatively recently um so a couple that were were buying a home they were buying they, was, they were taking the next step um up to the kind of the big family home and they'd been to see a high street lender a major high street lender because it was who they got their mortgage with initially and their high street lender said you can borrow now off the top of my head now i'm sure it was it was 100 and, it was 198000 it was 100 yeah no i'm just thinking it was 198000 just off 200k they could borrow 198000 and the house that they'd had an offer accepted on was way out of that bracket right so they came and had a, had a sit down with me um and this is after after kind of they'd had you know they'd been searching around and all the rest of it and They'd kind of given up hope and then they thought the, the, the guy um, decided that he'd have a quick Google of mortgage brokers. I had a chat with him. I said, let's come, come on and, and have a sit down. Let's have a chat. And I actually managed to make it work with a different lender that isn't on the high street. So the, the reason that the, the lender on the high street, I should say, wouldn't give them as much money is because lenders estimate using Office of National Statistics data, so ONS data, that's the government data uh, compiled by the government. They use that data to establish what they think 
within their own kind of risk metrics and the stuff, what they think um, a child will cost to raise. And they'll allocate how much uh, they will take off their income if they've got debt and how old they are and all these other kind of things and how much they think they'll spend on day-to-day living. And that's why this particular lender, which is a mainstream, everyone would know this lender. Um, They'd said, you can borrow £198,000. They were desperate to move to this home because they needed more space for for various reasons I'm not going to get into. Um, And I got them a mortgage for £272,000. So, you know, almost, you know, £75,000 more on a better deal with a lender that they would never have found on the high street. Now, at the time, when I sorted that out for them, they were so happy. It was a big chain. Uh, Everyone kind of had this big sigh of relief. And thankfully, you know, we managed to fix it and it was all okay. However, of course, if you can imagine that they hadn't gone and got financial advice from me, then that could have caused a chain of six houses to collapse. Now, that is that can be the consequence of not getting the right advice, you know? Um, and and I, I suppose I'm perhaps laboring this point, but I cannot stress how important the, this kind of thing is. I genuinely can't stress how important this kind of thing is. Now, often, typically estate agents won't push you into kind of going and getting financial advice before they put you on the market. And that's because they're actually bothered about getting you on the market because an estate agent doesn't, well, most estate agents don't make any money until they sell your home. Now, of course, there are various estate agents that are online that take upfront fees. Now, I'm going to be careful here how I say this, because I'm not meaning to kind of dissuade anyone from doing anything. And I've got to be careful of libel and stuff like that. If you pay someone something up front and they've got their money and your home is on the market, if you think about it rationally, how much of an incentive is there to help you over the line? Because they, they've done their job. They've taken your fee. They've got you on the market a lot of people assume that all that an estate agent does is just take some pictures and put them put put you on right move. That people assume that's all they do. That's so far from the truth. I can't tell you how wrong it is, but that's what people think. Um, so, but if, if you've already paid your fee and you're on the market, honestly, Josh, what incentive does that company or companies, I should say, have to make sure that you're in the right position, that you're getting the right advice, that, you, that everything's going swimmingly? Would you know what's well? As a businessman myself, I would say um, that if you're if you want to bring more clients in, which obviously you need to do, if you've already received their fees, you've got no money coming in um, unless you've got more people coming and wanting to sell their property. So to encourage people to come and sell it, you need to be able to say we are we are good. And if you've got properties in the window that have been there for a year. Uh, is an, is somebody new going to come and say, well, I want to sell my house with these? They're going to look at that. If it was me, if I wanted to sell my house, I'd be thinking, well, I want to go to that company that are shipping them out pretty swiftly. You, know, you guys haven't. And, and then poor customer feedback as well. If everybody's on, social media is a huge tool nowadays. And if, if an estate agent had that attitude, like you've mentioned there and said, well, I've got their fee, so I'm not bothered anymore. That would be all over social media. Don't use them because everybody. Whenever if somebody comes to sell a house now, I bet most people will go on social media and say uh, that they're selling, and they'll either ask for advice or not. But either way, they'll get it. That's the world we live in. You, whether you want advice or not, it's, it's given to you. And I guarantee people will say, is, "Oh, don't go with them." But the, the the one the one thing that you're missing here, Josh, is that that's assuming that people understand what they're doing. 
And this is the problem. And this does sound patronising, but most people don't. This is the problem. I know. So I, for well, example, it's patronising, but I wouldn't know. If I, I mean, we, we bought our first house uh, two or three years ago, and we planned to move in around seven, eight years' time because the family's getting bigger and whatnot. Um, and I honestly haven't got the first clear. I'll be coming to you to, to ask how to sell this place in a few years. So I don't, I don't find it patronising for you to say you have no idea how to sell a house because, quite frankly, you're absolutely right. And, and, and but as you can imagine, though, if there's a lot of people that don't think like that, then of course that can that you can see how that can lead to problems. And again, you know, so here, here's here's a thing, here's a thing that I see regularly. Um, so I see questions on social media. Can anyone recommend a mortgage advisor? Can anyone recommend an estate agent? And we're asking a so on on social media, we're asking a group of people that don't know Jack about what they've asked for a recommendation for. So here's the thing. I always find this baffling when people say, oh, I recommend such and such a broker. Now, I get recommendations because they go, oh, Lewis was great and da 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 And I get that. And it's a, it's a useful tool to generate business into my, you know, generate money into my business. It just is. That's a fact. You know, referrals and recommendations are great. But we've got to remember that actually the people recommending don't probably don't really know why they're recommending. So let me put it this way. Only another surgeon could tell you if that other surgeon is good because they're a surgeon. Yeah? Another doctor could say that doctor is good because they're a doctor and they understand what it takes to be a good doctor in the same way that a good mortgage broker, a good estate agent, a good solicitor could tell you if that person is good or not. A a member of the general public can't because they don't know what really constitutes being good because they don't do that job. You know, I don't know what it takes to... If someone said, could you recommend... A, a radio presenter, I'd say Josh, because I know you and I oh, trust you. Stop but it. no, but but what I'm saying is, but I don't know if I assume you are good because you do all these other kind of stuff on radio. But oh no, I'm absolutely terrible. I, but, but, but you can see what I'm saying. But actually, if you wanted, but you can see what I'm saying. But actually, the best person to decide and actually make a recommendation if Josh is good would be someone else that works in radio because they know what it takes to be good in radio. Does that make sense? Yeah, don't don't talk to other people about me in radio though. It's all tr- none of it's true. It's all <laughs> lies. Just don't don't believe yeah. any of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. So the, point, the point makes absolute sense that um and again, we've I mentioned a minute ago about social media being a, a massive tool nowadays, um, in both senses of the word sometimes. Yeah. Um and you're absolutely right. You know, anybody can pretend to be it's my daughter getting involved, she agrees, she's not a fan of Facebook, clearly. Um, other <laughs> platforms are available. Um you're absolutely right though, unless you're an expert in it yourself, you are you qualified to to pass judgment? Absolutely. You know, so so this is one of the reasons why. Why, you know, jumping on social media, it, it, asking for a personal recommendation from a guy down the pub is is different, you know. Um, but when you jump on social media, I see it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm a member of all these different, because I get added into all these different groups. And you know what, the, you know, the kind of sketch. And you see that whole thing of, can anyone recommend a good advisor? Well, for a start, what do you mean by good? Do you mean cheap? Because people often confuse and conflate the two, good and cheap, they often don't go together. Um, I see things like, can anyone make a, recommend a fee-free advisor, so a mortgage broker that doesn't charge fees? Right, so so you want financial advice from someone that you don't want to pay. Right. Now, not to say that they aren't, you know, but you see where I'm going with that. Um, you, you want to someone to arrange your mortgage for £250,000, but you, you don't want to pay for that. Well, just, if you don't want to pay, just go to a bank. <laughs> you know, um, uh, and also, you know, the whole thing of, so when pe- people ask, this is, this is a common, common one. Uh, does anyone know a good independent mortgage advisor? 
So here's the thing. With regards to financial regulation, independence has a very, very specific meaning within the Financial Conduct Authority. A lot of people will see a lot of mortgage brokers and they'll think that they're independent and they aren't. Now, I am independent and my terms of business say I am an independent mortgage advisor. That The terms of business, because it's a regulatory document that we have to present to a customer to inform them of the services and who we are and all that kind of stuff, is so regulated. Now, if that document doesn't say I am an independent mortgage advisor, then they aren't. It is, a, it is as simple and as cut and dried as that. There is no gray area. You're either independent or you're not. Now, most mortgage advisors aren't independent. Now, we can have a, I, could, I could have an argument with brokers of whether the Financial Conduct Authority should amend the definition of what it means to be independent. That's up for debate. You know, that I can have a I can have a kind of professional conversation with other people about that. But the reality is, is that people often ask for what, what's called independent mortgage advice. And they'll get recommended to people. And I see it all the time on Facebook, so and so's the best, so and so's the best. Well, one, how do you know they're the best? What constitutes the best for a start? And actually, if you pull people down and said, right, okay, so by what criteria are you judging that to be the best? You lay me, you, you give me three reasons. They wouldn't be able to. What they're actually saying is, I use this person. And therefore, I'm going to give this recommendation because I think I know better. In reality, is what's happening. Um, you know, and again, with the independence thing, people often do want independent mortgage advice and often end up without it because they get, well, well because again, there's not enough financial education out there. And as well, a lot of mortgage advisors do try to give the illusion of independence. So they'll say things like, we look from uh, uh, 90-odd lenders, or they'll say something like, we're whole of market, or they'll say something like, we give unbiased, impartial advice, or they'll say, we're independently owned. It's all given to give the illusion of independence, but isn't actually independence, to be fair. Um, so people, that, that is one thing that should, people definitely should be aware of. Um, I don't know how I've managed to get onto that bit, but shall we get back to the selling of the house? Yeah, well, on that point, one one question I do have about selling a house, um, it's actually more about buying a second house. Um, if I went and got a mortgage, let's say I've got a deposit of £50,000 yep. and I I want to borrow £100,000 to buy a property for £150,000. Yep. If I had uh, twice the deposit, £100,000, yep. and I wanted to get a house that was worth £200,000, Yep. Would, what would that look like from a credit point of view? What's the likelihood? Because the amount you're borrowing is the same. It's £100,000 in both situations. But in one, as a percentage, it's obviously much lower. It's 50% rather than 75 Does that have any bearing at all? Or is it ultimately, from a lender's perspective, it's the same amount of money regardless? So the only thing that changes there is... Uh, the interest rates likely to to change because in the in the first place if it, if you if you if you're putting down 15 you're borrowing 100 that's 66.6% loan to value if it's 100 against 100 that's 50% loan to value now in terms of how much you want to borrow that's based upon an affordability calculation the lender does your deposit doesn't really make much of a difference this is a common this is a common mistake that people make they think that because they've got an enormous deposit that means that they'll they'll be able to borrow more now it is the case uh that some lenders will have uh will have uh, a a barrier that's removed 
if you've got a certain level of deposit in terms of giving you that little bit extra, but it won't make a huge difference. And most lenders don't have that. Now, uh, in terms of how much you can borrow, that's only ever based upon what your income and your outgoings are. The deposit determines, one, the credit score that you're going to be needing to, to, to pass in order to get the mortgage to make sure that you're credit worthy enough, and two, the interest rate that you're going to be offered by the particular lender. So the deposit changes the interest rates typically and credit profile that you'll require. So if you if you've got a five percent deposit, um, so let's say let's say that someone's buying a house for a million pounds, someone's buying a house for a hundred thousand pounds. Yeah. Now this is have to going to be relatively rough and crude. So one's buying a hundred grand, one's buying a mill. They could both have five percent deposit and the one that's buying at £100,000 would have £5,000 deposit. The one that's buying at a million pounds would have £50,000 deposit. Now, even though that £50,000 deposit is 10 times bigger than the £5,000 deposit, nevertheless, they would still be subject to the same credit score because it's the same loan to value. Now, if, um, if that person that got the 50K then went and bought the house that was 100K, they would be subject to a lot lower credit score because they've got much more bigger, uh, much bigger deposit. So the deposit changes the risk profile that a lender attributes to you as a borrower, and that's it. It doesn't affect how much you can borrow, really. As I say, in some cases it does. Often with mortgages, the the answer is always it depends. In some cases it doesn't. In some cases it doesn't. But the majority of the time, it doesn't. Well, that answers my question. I just, I've just wondered because it was one of those things I always thought. Well, if you, you know, it makes sense if you're putting down a bigger percentage deposit, it's, it would show, uh, in theory, uh, that you're better value for that loan. You're more likely to be able to repay it because you've obviously got no, deposit in the first no. place. But no, not necessarily. So, so no, no. So, so you've got a bigger deposit doesn't doesn't says nothing about your ability to repay the loan because the ability to repay your loan is based upon what your income is and what your outgoings are. So for example, you know, on that basis, you've just said there that you're a better bet. If someone rocks up with a million pound deposit to buy a 1.2 million pound house, they're still borrowing 200,000 pounds, but if they only earn 10 grand a year, how are they going to afford to pay the payments? It, that doesn't follow logically. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And that's, that's why I was asking, because obviously, um, Although if you had that sort of money in your account, people would say, well, they're obviously an astute saver or they earn well. It could be a windfall. They could have been, for example, a relative has passed away and left them 100 grand. So they go and say, I want to buy a house for 150 grand. I've got two thirds of it as a deposit. Um, on the face of it, you think, wow, okay, well, this should be all right. But as you point out, it's about that continued income. And circumstances change, of course, as you mentioned previously as well. Um, so exactly. I, I was just intrigued. But so from what you were saying, it will improve the interest rate on the repayment but not improve your chance of being given the mortgage in the first place in a nutshell so it will improve no it will improve your chance of being approved for the mortgage in terms of a credit profile and in terms of a credit risk element but ultimately if you want to borrow a hundred thousand pounds you need to have x amount of income and an x amount of outgoings to be able to evidence that you can make those repayments so the amount that you can borrow isn't directly linked to the deposit the deposit only is linked to the the credit. So, for example, lenders set different scores. So, the bigger the, the bigger the, the deposit you have, the lower that credit score goes down. So, at ninety five percent loan to value, your credit score has to be excellent. At ninety percent, it drops a little bit. At eighty five percent, it drops quite a bit. And again, at eighty, it drops again. At seventy five percent, it drops off a cliff. And at sixty percent, as long as you've got a pulse, generally, 
because because then the, the lender goes right okay even if if even even if they you know get even if we have to repossess we're going to get our money back because they've got 40% equity in that so it so so it's only the credit score that is reduced by an increasing deposit but also because the risks of the bank is reduced that's why the interest rate comes down interesting stuff uh lewis before we call it a day is there anything else that you've not covered uh, because to be honest yes. we, we've covered quite a lot there and so i've not actually covered how you sell a house so well, so I'll, I'll just <laughs> i'll just quickly kind of a, a very very a very very fast run through so the correct process is go and get mortgage advice find out how much you can borrow understand the terms of your current mortgage to see if there are any penalties to get out of it understand the current the new mortgage that you could be potentially entering into and what that's going to cost get it agreed in principle so that you know that you can get the mortgage then put your house on the market then start looking as soon as you've got your house on the market instruct your instruct your uh, conveyances your your you know ideally you know in most cases I'll do that to so instruct the sales solicitors with a legal firm that's what's called legal ready so they can get everything prepped make sure that we know that the the um, the the the, the, the solicitors are going to be used on the purchase side typically we'll try to use a firm that'll do the sale and the purchase and also make sure that when you come to see someone like myself um, you know, you bring all the documentation and then we can run through everything because, of course, when you're taking that next step, the likelihood is is that there's going to be fees because you're going to have to pay for estate agents, solicitors for sale, solicitors for purchase, surveys, potentially a redemption fee. Almost certainly you're going to have to pay some, some form of stamp duty. All these things have to be taken into account for your budget and, and, and accounted for so that we can give accurate, concrete figures of, and okay, right, you can buy up to X. Do not go over it. You know, and I am quite forthright with that. Do not go over that budget because it's not going to happen. That's your maximum. Ideally, this, that's your max and don't exceed it. And then when it comes to actually finding a home that you need to, that you want to buy, be aware that because you're in a chain, that you may not, your offer may not be accepted by an estate agent on a property that you want to buy because you may not be in what's called a proceedable position. Because if you don't have someone that's wanting to buy your house, how are you buying that house? because you've not sold yours. And of course, you need the proceeds from the sale of your home to fund the deposit for the next home. So you do need to be careful. And it is much more of a a, a kind of, there's much more timing issues within selling a house and buying a home than there are when you're just a first-time buyer or, for example, buying a buy to let to rent out. So there's all these other things that need to be thought about. Next is um, be aware. Again, manage expectations. One in three, one in three property transactions falls through, through often no fault of, of, of someone's. So it's, it's often a case of they can't get a mortgage. There's an issue with the survey. Uh, there's an issue with the legal um, pack or whatever it might be. One in three properties falls through. So there's a lot uh, of, of moving parts in, in selling a home. You've got um, an estate agent. You've got a sales solicitor. You've got a purchase solicitor. You've got the person that you're buying the house from. You've got the first-time buyer that's buying your house. You've got the first-time buyer's lender. You've got your lender that you're you know, repaying. You've got the new lender you're going to. You've got the vendor solicitor. You've got um, all that other kind of stuff. You've got potentially two or three different surveyors involved. A lot of moving parts. A lot of moving parts. Yeah, it sounds, um, it sounds an absolute minefield. <laughs> Um, so is, is that is if people do the right thing at the start and do it in the right process and, and follow the right process, we can alleviate and eliminate the vast majority of issues that can crop up by following the right process. And that leads to one, it's more cost efficient. Two, 
it's 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 quicker. Three, it's less hassle. And four, the likelihood is, is that the more issues we can iron out at the start by following the right process, typically the more money you'll save because you know you know exactly what you're doing, you know, you know, and all this other kind of stuff. And it just it, to be fair, it leads to uh just less stress and anxiety for people on, on every single on every side, to be fair. So so that's the way to go about it, basically. Lewis, thank you very, very much for all of that. Um, that is about all we've got time for today. Um, we will be back, I'm sure, delving into more and more aspects of buying and selling properties, along with all the other financial advice as well. In the meantime, thank you, as always, for guiding us through what is an absolute minefield uh, of selling a house. No worries, mate. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening as well. You have a great evening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.